Let us go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him for the blessing over His Word. We praise You and give thanks to You, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who of Your grace and mercy has called us to be Your people, has made us a new creation in Christ, has given us great and glorious promises concerning all our todays and our tomorrows. We thank You that we have been called to victory, and we pray, our Father, that as we face the powers of darkness, we may face them as more than conquerors, and the blessed assurance that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that the increase of His government there shall be no end. Grant us by Your Spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, O God, for the sake of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. So here today we will be starting a series on the book of Colossians. One of the things that uh, I like for us to do when we, we do, just, just to kind of give you the pattern, if you haven't picked up on it, from Advent to Pentecost, I preach the gospel. I want us to know about Christ, the work, His words, all that He has done for us. And then during the church season or common season of the church calendar, we try to teach us and, and, and instruct you in the ideas of what it means to be the church, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and how this has impact in our lives. And so we just spent a, a good bit of time this past season going through how do we worship God. We went through all the stages of that and why we worship. And then we spent a little bit of time on marriage and family parenting. And so today we're studying a, starting a study on the book of Colossians. And in the book of Colossians, we'll be going over this all the way until December, taking a look at this passage and learning what the Spirit has to say, how we can be the church, and what the instructions were to the church in Colossae. So let us hear God's word from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 1 and then ending at verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. And it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace in truth. As you have also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all the patience long-suffering with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins. Now there's a lot there, and frankly there's so much doctrine packed into there that I could spend all three months on this passage, but we won't do that. Or 18 hours today, we won't do that either. But you know, we live in an age where we are challenged with things that we think no one else in history has had to deal with. Where it may be true that technology has advanced, and these advances do produce different means for us to sin, what Solomon says is true. There's nothing new under the sun. What I mean by that is, there's always been lust. Only we have new ways to go about doing that, or access to, or promoting those things. There's always been anger. And yes, we can, again, we can look at technology and see how that stirs us up to anger. And, and again, I just want to share to you what you are facing, the sins, the challenges, the difficulties that you are having in your life today are the same sins that our Christian brothers and sisters had to face since the very beginning of the church. You know, men strive to be important. All men need to be needed. And by that I mean, yes, it's given to men to be that way, but all people need to be needed. And men desire to be the only answer when someone has a problem. That's our temptation. Many of you are familiar with the quote, don't waste a crisis. Anybody heard that before? You know, it's often attributed to a former White House chief of staff under a previous president. However, it seems that it was first coined by a guy named Saul Alinsky. I imagine a few of you know who he is. He wrote a book in 1971 called Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals. And of course, Saul Alinsky, he was not for transforming the world through Jesus Christ, but rather through revolutionary means, overthrow all the standing institutions. But he was right in this, that crisis cries out for a savior. Men who clamor for prestige look for crises, problems, or even challenging things and they wish to be the person or the leader of the organization that's going to bring all the answers. You know, they come out to us and act like they have a decoder ring to what you need to know and what you need to do for the crisis. And you know, of course, they're the only ones that got that decoder ring out of the Cracker Jack box. Now, God's design is for people to be taught by others with more experience. But to whom do these clamoring leaders point to for help? Themselves or God? 
I do not deny that there are crises and that there are real ones and that they do need solutions. But you know, the temptation of man is this. When the crises is averted and they have grown in prestige and power, they don't want to let it go. So what do they do? They figure out ways to extend the crises. They figure out ways to make it stretch or in fact maybe they even create new crises or talk about something being a crisis. But when they come to an end, that is these crises, these troubles, these difficulties, do they or do we thank God for bringing relief and deliverance? Do we thank God for those who he used to bring us relief and help? Or are we of the mindset, well, obviously there's something around the corner that we have to deal with. We need to be turning to these same people all the time. You might be wondering if this is a political talk or a sermon right about now. But it's not a political talk. It's, in fact, the introduction to Colossians. Because the saints and Colossae were a faithful church, for they are called saints. But among them were false teachers who were using the very same tactics that we see today in the church there. This is not new. So Colossae was, was in modern-day Turkey. It's a small, inconsequential town nestled between Ephesus and Laodicea. It's not a big city, maybe 20,000, but it had no big economic uh, drivers. It wasn't the place where all the big gods had their temples. It was just a place where God established his church. Now this letter to the saints of Colossae was written about the same time as Paul's epistle to Ephesians, right about 60 or 61 A.D. Now, what's really interesting is when you study these two books together, you see a lot of parallel ideas. When God uses Paul to, to write these letters, these epistles, to the church, there's an awful lot of parallels in those two books. And, in fact, they're shared uh, between the churches later on. Now, these false teachers were circulating among the Christians. Can you imagine that? Do we have any false teachers circulating around the greater church today? And I sure hope not in here. But they could be here. Paul responds to these false teachers with a single answer to each lie. And that is Christ. As we study this book together for the next several months, we will see... That prayer is central, but it's not just prayer, it is prayer saturated in gratitude. As we truly understand God's ongoing grace made possible by Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the joy of gratitude grows. It becomes more immense. When, when, when do you feel the most gratitude towards God? 
when you recognize the forgiveness of, his, of your sins and really in the fact that you know how bad your sins are. Right? When you recognize that. And what, what should we do? Out of the recognition that God has forgiveness, forgiven us of these grievous sins, we should be growing in this overwhelming desire of gratitude and thankfulness. And it should be evident in our prayers. It should be evident in our song. When you're really happy or you see a person that's really happy, what do you find them doing very frequently? They're singing a song. They're humming it under their breath. They're whistling it. Why? It's a joyful tune. They're, they're, they're feeling full of joy and happiness. Gratitude grows from prayers to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we'll see this as the, as the book moves through these challenges, what, how the expression of gratitude and thanksgiving moves from petitions into song because God answers the prayers that we bring before Him. Why does the Christian sing? Why do you sing? Well, because I come in here to church and the elders have said we got to sing, so everybody stand up and sing together and, and we push out there, sing vigorously. If you can't keep a tune in a bucket, we don't care, sing loud. Sing it out. Sing because God has forgiven you. We sing because of the supremacy of Christ. He is king over all. But he is the king who laid down his life for his people so that we may be reconciled to God. So that we, who were once in bondage to our sin and unable to access God's presence in his sanctuary, are now forgiven and allowed into his sanctuary to draw near in worship, to give thanks, so that God can give us gifts to be fruitful in the task of dominion over what he has given us. We will see in this letter to this church that there were false teachers among these saints corrupting the gospel. And these false teachers, they added to the gospel. There are three basic things that we'll see as we go through the book. One, that the false teachers were creating, as one commentator describes, a cluttered sanctuary, adding to what was required for access to God. This is mostly going to come up in chapter 2, a little bit into chapter 3, this whole development of these three questions. But I'm trying to lay it out for you so you understand the context as we build in what Paul is doing in the first part in chapter 1 and as we keep moving through. Can you imagine that? Someone adding to what's required to access to God? Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Isn't that what we see all the time today? People are coming, okay, you got to do this to come to God. you got to do that to come to God. You, and, and it's not, it's, it's extra biblical things. They describe holiness, which they think is the right to get into God. You don't get into God's presence because you're holy. You get into God's presence because of the work of Jesus Christ, His holiness, not your own. The second thing that these false temp teachers emphasized was outward religiosity with complicated 
religious observances. Now these complicated religious observances were not, like, like one might say if you've, been to, if you've ever grown up in a different tradition of faith, our service looks a little complicated. Well, ours, we've tried really hard, not just us, but those who have taught us these things. And the historical church has studied, this is what scripture says, we're going to model our service in this way. But they were adding, creating extra biblical rules and making the religious observances complicated. Now, why do you think they made them complicated? Well, these false teachers... They wanted to be declared as the possessors of the esoteric or secret knowledge to help these saints in this church. They cluttered all the power structures of heaven. That is, all the powers. They, they cluttered the sanctuary of God with what they'd added. And they're saying they have all the answers so they can help you navigate the obstacles which, by the way, they put in place so that you can get to God. We must remember that Jesus came to remove what separates us from God. Now, we certainly understand this by his death and resurrection, right? Because there he died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could enter into his sanctuary. Sometimes, though, we forget that all the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels was to end separation from God. In the Gospels, there were healings of diseases that barred people from the sanctuary. When Christ healed leprosy, what, what happens after someone's healed with leprosy? They can go, be checked out by the priest, and do what? Enter into the sanctuary. The same thing was true for blindness, Lameness, blood flow. As I talk about those things, you can think into the Gospels. Oh, the blind people that Jesus healed, the lame people Jesus healed, the people with issues of blood that Jesus healed. Those were all barriers to coming into the sanctuary, albeit in just the first part of the sanctuary. What about this? When Jesus delivered people from demons... Did that open them up and cleanse them to come into the temple? Absolutely. How about this one? We don't really think about this as being an obstacle to entering into the sanctuary, but it is in a way. What about the people that Jesus raised from the dead? They had a barrier to coming into the, the temple, did they not? God raised them from the dead. These are all teaching us that that was Christ's sole purpose in coming was so that we could enter into God's presence into his sanctuary. God's sanctuary is where he dwells. It is the place where he calls us, you and I. He cleanses us at the doorway. He speaks and changes us with his word. And then he brings us to his table of peace. And he offers us himself, so we are strengthened for the work he sends us out into the world to accomplish. So the answer to all these false teachings is as follows. So there's three questions, right? So what, what's the answer? Christ, Christ, Christ. 
The way, the only way to God is through Christ Jesus. Saints, and that's what Paul is calling those folks in the church of Colossia, saints have access to God's sanctuary. We see in Colossians chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this introduction points out several things here. First, Paul is writing with the special authority of apostleship. Now, apostles in this sense are early leaders in the church who, the spe- through, through the special work of the Holy Spirit, are given the task of teaching and writing the Scriptures. Now, there's something really interesting going on in here that we don't always pick up. And although these apostles here are like the prophets of old, like Moses of old, there's no continuous succession in apostleship. Well, and, and we see this right here because what does he say about Timothy? Now, Timothy is the, the, the young man he brings along. He's trained as a pastor. One might say in today's modern vernacular, he's the heir apparent. Man, when Paul goes... Timothy's the big man on the block, right? He doesn't call him an apostle, does he? He calls him a brother. And this is important because it helps us remind that there's no apostolic succession like some folks think. But we see here that Paul calls all the members of this church saints and faithful brethren. Now, I was thinking about this as we were singing some of these songs today, right? We hear these songs, even in our psalm reading today, it, it, there's this statement, we're saying it, and we're thinking about it, where it's like it sounds like the psalmist is saying, or, or even in the songs we sing, like we're standing on our own righteousness. I come before God, check me out. Well, how can we say these things? It's not in our righteousness, it's not in our works, but it is in the works of Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness that God has given us. So when we say these things, when we sing these things, when we read these psalms, we are saying, thank God that Christ was faithful and His righteousness has been, is covering us. When God looks at us, He's not looking at our righteousness. Now this is not an excuse or a license just to run wild with sin, but to have a recognition that we can sing these truths because our faith is not in our righteous works, but in the righteous works of Jesus Christ. We see that he greets them. Paul greets the church there with grace and peace of the Father and of the Son. And he is, of course, writing these things under the inspiration of the Spirit. So we see that the triune nature of God is expressed here. And we also see that there is a blessing for God's people. Sometimes people become so, we'll call them navel gazers, they're so overwhelmed with all their own sin that they can't look to Christ and they're just overwhelmed. And, and serving God, it feels like a curse. It's not a curse. 
in serving God is a blessing, even through hardship and difficulty. We see there in verse 3 that we are to live our lives with gratitude and prayer. It says this, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Paul starts right in with gratitude towards God for these saints. Here's a good question. How many guys have ever struggled being thankful? Don't put your hands up. Just proverbially think about it, right? You've struggled being thankful. You know, you ever get to Thanksgiving Day and, you know, you've got this exercise with your kids and your family and you say, okay, I want you to write down one thing and share at the table what you're thankful for, right? You know, people are scratching their heads. We're thinking... You know, we have all the warm, fuzzy things. I'm thankful for the turkey. I'm, I'm thankful that, that mom and dad are home today. You know, all these different simple things, and those are good to be thankful for. But do we thank God for our fellow brethren, the fellow saints that we have? We should give thanks to God for his work, not only in the lives, because you know what? You know, sometimes we hear these stories, oh, look what God is doing over there. Isn't that amazing what God is doing in that foreign country or in that neighborhood that's over there? People you don't know anything about, and we're like, oh, isn't that great? What about giving thanks for the work of the gospel with these saints right here? That God is working in their lives, that he's forgiving their sins. Why do you think we struggle with that? Well, because people are hard, right? Does, has anyone in this room ever gotten on your proverbial last nerve? Husbands, wives, kids, parents, just plain old people in your congregation? Do we thank God for the work of Christ in their lives? Do we thank God for their edifying works, that is, the things they do that encourage us? Sometimes we, we do that. How about the sanctifying works, how God uses the people in this room to challenge your sinful nature, your selfishness? Typically, for example, if we have conflict with our wife or our husband, at that moment... We are not thanking God for that challenge. What would happen if we stopped and did that before we spoke? What would happen when our children challenge us? Kids, look up here. What would happen if when your parents are correcting you, teaching you, and it's hard, if you pause and say, Thank you, God, for this instruction. Or sometimes, kids, what happens when you're running into the church? Someone in, in the church says, slow down. You don't want to knock over the old people or maybe even the young people, right? Are you thankful for how God uses others in your life? We should be. We should rejoice and actually thank God for his transformation in our lives through his work and how he uses others for it. We see in Psalm 75, 1, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks 
for your wondrous works. And these wondrous works declare that your name is near. So when God has his people near you, his wondrous works are near you. Be thankful. We also see this pattern in Romans 16, Ephesians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. And this is important. Have gratitude for what God's doing specifically in your life and how God is using others. And thankful for your enemies as well. We see that that Paul's pattern in the epistles, particularly you can see it really clearly in Ephesians and Colossians here, that he gives thanks for the saints in his prayers. And we also see this pattern that Paul teaches for prayer. One, this is the pattern, it's real simple. You're struggling on praying, here are the three steps right here. One, give thanks to God for creation and life. Find this here in Colossians. We'll see that in a minute, we'll, but it's also in Ephesians chapter 1, the same. Second thing is, give thanks to God for redemption in Christ. And the third thing is, ask God to finish the good work He's begun. Now, sometimes that, that last one, we don't quite see it until we study in, 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 with, with careful eyes because it's a call for God to help us to grow into maturity. So these three things are, once again, one, give thanks to God for creation and life. Two, give thanks for redemption in Christ. And three, ask God to, to finish the good work He's begun. And those are those things that bring us to maturity and more faith in Him. So I'll just say this. I, I'm, I'm going to, 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 to make an educated guess here that some of you have had difficulty with a faithful pattern of prayer. Right? That's a struggle we all have, right? The diligence to do that. The pattern of Scripture is both morning and evening prayers. Folks, when you get up in the morning, there's three things right here. Walk up to a window, look out that window. Maybe it's with a baby in your arm. But you walk up to that window, thank God, for his creation, all that life out there, and for the life he's given you, and maybe that baby you're, you're toting around, patting on the shoulder. Thank God for that. Then, thank God for his great redemption and forgiveness of your sins, and ask him to continue to work in your life and in the work, lives of other people so that they may grow in Christ. And, and, you know, you can expand that. You can take it, if you've got a long list, you can take every person on your list and pray these three things, and you'll go through all kinds of stuff if you're doing it in detail. But if that's all the time you have, start with that. When you say your, your, your prayers with your family in the evenings, real simple, one, two, three. Pray. Set that up. Don't make it a burden. Obviously, I want to see you grow in prayer. We want you to grow in prayer. But sometimes... I know some of you guys are in the military. Sometimes emergencies come up. You can do these three things pretty quick in a pinch. The next thing we see in this passage, beginning in verse 5, is that Jesus is the only hope. It says this in verse 5, because of the hope, and I want to say this, this word hope here probably ought to be capitalized. 
because it says this, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. So we see in this part of the, 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 the passage here, what's, what's laid up for you in heaven? We have the tendency, well, that's treasure. Really, what's the treasure that you have in heaven? Is it Jesus Christ? It is. But more than that, we can see that this is pointing to Jesus because of what? It says, you, you heard of the word of the truth in the gospel. The gospel truth isn't that, hey, you got a bunch of riches up there. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ has forgiven you so you have access to the Father. Then it says, that it's come to you. Those rich, you know, if, it's, if you're still on the thing of riches, riches in heaven, they don't come down to you. No, Christ comes to you. He has come. And where did he come? He came to all the world. And when Jesus comes and he forgives people and he is doing things, what happens? It brings forth fruit. And, again, there's this emphasis here. Since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. It goes on and says, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was the faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. We see here that Jesus, as the hope laid up in heaven, we see that it is Christ alone who is the one who is bringing you blessings. He's the one that gives you forgiveness. He's the one that draws you to God. And He is the one to whom... Your sins are forgiven. We can see in 1 John 5, 12, it says this, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. The only way to, to have access to God, the only way to have your sins forgiven, is through the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, this truth came to them by God calling them. This is a reminder of election. We see that again parallel in Ephesians 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces fruit that transforms us and what we are doing in our lives. Remember this, John 15:5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. This fruit is the product of the hope that is Jesus Christ. And it is only found in him. We also see this. This is important that they were taught by a minister named Epaphras. They were taught the words of God so that they would continue producing much fruit. Not by his words, but because he declared the word of God and preached and taught. So I, I want to pause here and just say, people of God. Have gratitude for the work of Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Pray. Drive yourself to joy. Because God has forgiven you in Christ alone. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We thank you that you have created us, that you have given us life, 
that you have given us tasks before you. But Lord, we can't do these on our own. Our sin has separated us from you. But we give you thanks and praise and with our whole heart full of gratitude and joy that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sins, to set us free. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you and ask you to make us fruitful. Fulfill us in growth in you, in maturity, and embracing your word. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.